back to the Sacred Birth Circle. This is the first episode of 2023, and I'm so honored we got to start with an interview with Tamika James Isaac. She's an activist who's working very hard in the area of maternal health, trying to help other families have better outcomes in honor of her son, Jace. I hope that you will enjoy this episode and share it with everyone you know. This is Anna Vick. I am with you here at the Sacred Birth Circle with our first episode. I am just so excited to have our guest today, who is somebody that I've been connecting with quite a bit lately as we both work in the maternal health field, trying to raise awareness about stillbirth prevention and um, just networking with other people in the community. I've heard her name a lot, and it's just so exciting that we get to have her here today to share her own story and also the work that she's doing. So Tamika, say hello. Hi, I'm I'm Tamika Isaac. I am the co-founder of Jace's Journey. I am located in Denver, North Carolina, and Jace's Journey was an organization birthed out of our experience. Um, it is named after our son, Jace, who we lost in 2018, and that's how I got here. That's how I got into maternal health. That's how I met Anna and got involved with PUSH and all the things. So I'm really happy to be here. So thanks, Anna, for inviting me to be the first live for 2023. So yeah. just happy to be here. And I'm looking forward to sharing our story with your audience. Thank you so much. We're both from North Carolina too. So we'll have to get together. Uh, honestly, like the reason for doing these for me is that we both, we were just talking about it. We go to these events, these councils, these things that are run by the government that discuss issues pertaining to maternal health and they don't include the voices of families often. And so I feel like it's just as important. A lot of my podcast has special guests that are doctors and that are researchers in this field because I do think the research matters. But as I'm also in this, as a parent myself, I've come to see that a lot that gets discussed is not truly what is going on, you know, for families. Like the research is not fully complete, first of all. The data collected is not done properly at this point. We're all advocating for like the Shine for Autumn Act right now because unfortunately, when you lose a baby, the first thing that happens is you get all these options. And sometimes I got discouraged about autopsy and we'll discuss about your case, what you guys ended up doing, but I didn't have any reason. I have a cause immediately following my son's death. Everything looked fine. My son Owen was perfect. I was perfect. I had perfect pregnancy. So we were just in shock and disbelief. We didn't understand what was going on here. So I was trying to do my own research, trying to figure this out. The doctors were not helping. They were basically presenting barriers themselves. Um, so I didn't know what to do, my husband either. So we continue to have more babies, try to have children. We did lose another miscarriage after then we had my rainbow baby and a very high risk situation. And so finally, six years later, I got the cause of my son's death from a placenta pathologist, which is a specialist, which not everyone has access to nor knows about. And so I finally found, you know, what caused my son to die, which was cord compressions. And I'm going back now because I want this to be input correctly into the data. And I'm actually having to fight for this to be done because for some reason they don't want to go back, but they will for any other person who dies. Of course, if you get new evidence, you wanna have accurate data. And I'm saying, this is important to me you know, this needs to be in there for the record for research. So I already know that like from my own personal experience, it's incorrect. But also as you lose a child and you're looking for reasons and what happens and, you know, you start to blame yourself and then you're like, well, I don't really see myself in the data, like in what they say is causes and things like that. So there's a reason we have problems and it's because they're not listening to parents and they're not involving us. So for me, I mean, having someone like yourself, not only are you, unfortunately, in my shoes as well, losing a baby, but you're also in the community now and you're hearing a lot of stories. I think, you know, you may not have a PhD, but your experience level, unfortunately, is way higher than those people even, you know? So mm -hmm. I think our voices are much more important in that sense. So I just wanted to let you share your story a little bit of how your pregnancy was and, you know, you can share as much or as little as you want for that. Okay. Well, um, I, I, I say we do have PhDs, right? Because that lived experience is, is something that nobody else can get. Like, regardless of how much education you have, we have an experience that is 
our own, like regardless of what it was, regardless of the situation, yeah, there are similar stories, but our stories are our own. And I think that's why it's, it's so always so important for us to share our stories because yes, you're right. I talked to a lot of people and I've heard a lot of stories, but our story again, is it always seems like you're still on this little island by yourself, no matter what it is. And, you know, just like you, I, I thought I was having the perfect pregnancy, right? Um, just, you know, a little backstory. It took us a little while to get pregnant. Um, I got married when we were, I was 38 years old. And, you know, we didn't try right away, but like between 39 is when I, we were like, okay, we're going to start trying to have a baby. And it actually took a little while. I actually had gone to a reproductive endocrinologist to like do some testing but, you know, for me and my husband at the time, it just didn't feel right for, you know, us. So we didn't go through with IVF or IUI or any, any of those things. And we kind of just kept trying at home, at home or wherever. No, um, <laughs> we just kind of. <laughs> she was trying. She was trying, guys. She a good try. <laughs> and, you know, eventually we got pregnant. So we got pregnant with Jace in 2017 and. I had a really good pregnancy. I was immediately told I would be high risk because again, I was 38 when I got married. So now I'm 40. Um, you're you're gonna be high, you're considered high risk for preeclampsia. And we want to put you on this low dose of aspirin because it helps prevent preeclampsia. Like, okay, cool, you know, whatever. And I had gone to my regular OB. So um, my annual pap smears, all those things, same, same doctor. I was like, yeah, this is a perfect transition. Been going to him for years. Um, but like my specific OB had like taken on some management role at the hospital and wasn't there as often, but it's a clinic. So they're like, well, we want you to see everybody anyway, because we don't know who's going to deliver your baby. And, you know, this is my first, you know, pregnancy and, you know, we were ecstatic, like we were just super excited. And, you know, we found out it was a boy. Uh, we, you know, did some genetic testing, like what trisonomy at you know 13 and all those things so we did some of those things and everything kind of checked out and they told me you know part of me being high risk would be like my ultrasounds would be done at maternal fetal medicine but other than that that was really all they said um <clears throat> and my pregnancy was good I didn't have any morning sickness so I was super excited about that um I didn't really gain a lot of weight I probably gained about maybe 30 40 pounds um at the most while I was pregnant and it was it was smooth sailing like we were living our best lives going I was just seeing you on my sunshine every single morning to him mm -hmm. um in the shower and it, it was really good and at about 35 weeks is when I started going to the doctor every week well I think I yeah I literally had just started that so we were going to the doctor every week and at 35 weeks was just a regular appointment and during that appointment they were like well he's measuring a little small so we want to send you to maternal fetal medicine and an ultrasound so I, I immediately go to maternal fetal medicine I get this ultrasound and he was blocking the umbilical cord is what my is what in my what's in my records he was blocking the umbilical cord and they couldn't get a good reading so they couldn't really determine why he was measuring small what was going on with the umbilical cord but you have another appointment next week. We'll just, you know, follow up next week. I go, you know, through the weekend, go next appointment, which is the following Thursday. So this was Thursday, May 4th. Next appointments, Thursday, May 10th, go in, non-stress test. He failed a non-stress test. I'm like, okay, we need for you to go back to maternal fetal medicine and get an ultrasound. I'm like, okay. I immediately go back to maternal fetal medicine. I get another ultrasound. And they're like, oh, he's fine. He scored an eight out of eight on this ultrasound scale, whatever that means. He's perfect. Well, you're good to go. I'm good. I'm like, okay, cool. And it just happens to be Mother's Day weekend. So that thir the 13th was Mother's Day. That was that Sunday. And we had gone to Greensboro because my husband's mom lives in Greensboro. We went to go visit her, hang out with her. And I was eating like this, all this stuff. It's kind of random. I'm just throwing stuff together. And that night, you know, we got back home and that night we were, um, it was like in the wee hours of the morning, probably like two, three o'clock in the morning. And my stomach was like really hurting. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I 
in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm, it, it has to be like food poisoning. Maybe I, just, I don't know what it was, but I thought, I thought it was food poisoning because my stomach was hurting so badly. And I got up and I tried to, you know, do number two, but it wouldn't, like I couldn't. And so I eventually threw up. Um, and when I threw up, I felt better. So I'm like, okay, well, that's done. So I go back to sleep. And that next morning I wake up because I'm still working at this point. Um, and I felt really sore in my, like my abdomen section. I felt really sore and I kind of call, I kind of text into work. So I'm texting my manager. It's like, I don't feel well, I'm not going to come in and, you know, no harm, no foul, just kind of lay in bed all day. My husband had to go to work. So he calls my best friend who, you know, works from home and she came, he was like, just in case, you know, something goes down, I'm just going to have her here. Uh, so she comes and she's there with me and I kind of lay in bed all day. So around four-ish, 4.30 in the afternoon, this is May 14th, I, I ask her to come help me go to the restroom. So she comes up, you know, I'm getting, I'm trying to get up out of bed, still feeling the soreness in my abdomen. And when I stood up, I passed out. So I come to, and I'm laying on the floor, of course, and she's on the phone with 911. And she, she's like double fisting. Like she has my, the phone with 911. Then she has the phone with my mother. My mother, she puts the phone, my mom, the phone with my mom to my ear. And I'm talking to my mom. My mom's like, hey, do you know what day it is? And all these things. Ambulance comes, they scoop me up. They take me, rush me to the emergency room. I get there. By the time I get there, Brandon's there. Um, Brandon's my husband. <laughs> I didn't say that. Brandon's my husband. He's there. A few of my family members are there that are local and some friends. So we're all kind of there. I get there. I'm admitted at like into the ER. I'm admitted to the ER at 6 p.m. So I'm sitting there and we're, I think they do a Doppler. I have no idea. I'm kind of, I'm lucid. Like I know what's going on, but I'm also not in the position to make any type of decisions for myself. Um, so they come in, I think they do the Doppler and we wait and it gets quiet and we wait. So this is six o'clock. They hook me up to IVs. They, you know, give me a catheter and all these things. And then at about 7.50 is when they do an ultrasound. So they do the ultrasound and they leave the room and then it gets really quiet. Like it gets super pin drop quiet and I'm still kind of on the phone with my mom and I remember saying they don't know what they're doing something's not right like they don't know what they're doing something's not right and this lady walks in this doctor walks in my husband again my husband's there we're sitting we're standing there I'm laying in the bed he's standing beside me and she says oh your son died in utero oh my god and we were like what you know like what your son died in utero. Like I've never seen anybody's heartbreak, but I looked at my husband and I knew, I knew what he was feeling because I was feeling it too. And we were both super shocked. But then like the delivery of it was like, it was so nonchalant and so matter of factly and not even like, like maybe you don't know us, I understand that, but you just told us our son died. And you couldn't have found anything in your past experience to deliver that a little softer. But we really honestly didn't have a lot of time to even process that news because they're like, but we don't really have a lot of time to worry about, you know, this because you have help syndrome. Mm -hmm. And again, we're both sitting there like, okay, so what is help syndrome? Because I had never heard of it. He had never heard of it. And they never explain it. Like they never explained what it was. And we have to, and, and it was like, we have to induce you. And I'm like, you just told me that my son died. I'm pretty sure I can't handle an induction right now. Can I have a C-section? They said no. And not only could, could they not give me a C-section, they also could not do it there, the induction there because there was, I was tachycardic, which means my heart rate was like really high. So my heart rate was like fluctuating between 130 and 160 and I'm laying down. 
So they were like, they didn't have anybody there that could actually monitor me during the induction, my heart during the induction or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they needed to transfer me to another hospital. So, you know, 750, we found out Jace has passed away. I have health syndrome. I'm sitting there. Like I'm, I'm just waiting at this point on transport. They're not really doing anything. So at about almost 10 o'clock PM, they do a CT scan. That CT scan is then sent to the hospital that they're transferring me to. And I finally am released from this hospital on my way to the other hospital about 1043. So almost 11 o'clock PM. Mind you, I got there at six o'clock. So here I am in transport. One of the residents, happened to look at my CT scan. She wasn't required to. She she just, she told me, she was like, Tamika, it had to be God because there was no reason for me to look at your CT scan. Like there was just something in my spirit that, that told me to look at it. So when she looks at my CT scan, she realizes that I'm bleeding internally. And I had, I mean, I, I've been bleeding this whole time I'm sitting at the hospital. And she calls back to this ER and she says to them, did y'all know she was bleeding internally? And of course they didn't because they literally had just done the CT scan. So they were like, she needs to go into emergency surgery. Y'all need to turn the lights on. Y'all need to get her here now. And she needs, she needs surgery right now. So I have no idea any of these things are happening in the background because I'm in the back of the bus, right? Like I'm in the back of the bus. I don't know about the blood. I don't know about the, I don't even know about the CT scan at this point. So they will me into the, the operating room at the other hospital and a nurse, a doctor, I'm not really sure who it was, whispers in my ear. And she was like, hey, we're getting ready to give you a C-section. And I remember being kind of puzzled because I was like, I just kind of asked for that. And they said, no. So they, you know, she tells me this, I have that thought, and then they put me to sleep. Um, turns out I had a liter of blood in my stomach and a softball-sized blood clot on my liver. And HELP syndrome, for those people who don't know, is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets. So I'm bleeding internally, but I'm also not clotting. And this softball side, this blood clot that's on my liver is close to rupturing. So I'm like bleeding like water. I have blood in my stomach. It's pouring. Like they literally have to pack me with sponges to try to stop the bleeding. And they ultimately kept me open um, because they didn't know how to stop it. And they didn't know when it was going to stop. So they kept me open they cut me they got they take chase out and then they pack me with sponges I coded one time that night the doctors were like we don't know why she's still alive and we don't know if she's really gonna we we don't know like we've thrown at everything at her that we can we we don't know if she wakes up so this is Monday night into Tuesday morning if she wakes up it probably won't be until about Thursday or Friday and that's if she wakes up at all so, you know, here's my poor husband. My, my husband has found out that he a, lost his son and now, you know, he's making decisions that may or may not save my life. Like, what do you, what do you even do with that? And, you know, you talk about like autopsies. We, we didn't have a chance. Like we didn't have a chance to make a decision on anything. I have no idea if anybody asked. Um, so no, we we don't know specifically what Jace's cause of death was. Um, we've had conversations with uh, a midwife, a couple of midwives, and it's like it sounds like it may have been placental abruption just because of the amount of blood in your stomach, but no, you know, real facts about what happened. Um, the OB office that I had gone to, you know, for at least ten years, seven to ten years never heard a word from them. 
you know, during this, I know they called them because they had to get my medical workers because it was a different um, health system that I ended up going, being a part of or going to. So, you know, here in Charlotte, the area, it's, it's Atrium and then Novant. So I was a Novant patient and then ended up being transferred to an Atrium hospital. So, you know, from, you know, that medical connection, I don't even think they had connected their records at that point. So they had to call and get them. Um, so I have no idea what Jace's um, ultimate cause of death was. Um, and nobody's ever offered that information up. So, you know, I wake up that Wednesday. Um, so I surprised them all. I'm a tourist the bull, if that tells you anything about me. Um, and when I woke up, I wore glasses, contacts, and I couldn't see a thing. And I'm also intubated. So when I first wake up, I'm intubated and I have mitts on my hands. Apparently I tried to pull that whole tube out. Um, sounds just like me. Um, so they, they put mitts on my hands and I remember waking up and my mom looking at me, who of course was in Tennessee when all this went down. So I wake up, my mom's there. And she, she looks at me and she asks me if I want to hold Jace. And I shake my head, but I'm trying to also tell them that I can't see. So I can't talk because I'm tubed and I can't see because I don't have on contacts or glasses and they're not in the room. So I'm like kind of playing charades with them. And they didn't get it at first. Like for, it, took them, it took them a minute. Um, but when they finally understood, and I ended up getting my husband's glasses. And I hold, you know, I hold Jace for a few minutes. I couldn't really, I really couldn't see his face just because our prescriptions are so different. And then a nurse walks in and say, hey, we got to take him out right now. We got to take him to the morgue. So I would say probably less than five minutes is, is how long I held my son because ultimately I would be in the hospital for 45 days. Wow. Um, that blood clot on my liver actually ended up rupturing. I was, again, still cut open. I was in the ICU for a week. Um, the day before Jace's funeral, um, I got an infection in my abdomen and that stemmed from the liver because they had embolized my liver. So they had killed off part of my liver or tied it off. And that part got infected. So I ended up getting an abscess on my liver that caused an infection. And I have you know, this really deep um, cup in my abdomen that required a wound vat, which is like a machine that sucks out moisture in order for you to heal faster. So I have this situation, I have this home health aid, and this is this week, I'm this one week I'm home. So I have this health aid that comes in and she comes in and she's like, hey, I kind of smell an odor, I need for you to go to the ER. So the day before Jace's funeral, we go to the ER about 10 o'clock that night at five o'clock in the morning, that's when they tell me that they want us to be, they want to readmit me. Um, Jace is buried about three and a half hours away from here because I'm from Eastern North Carolina and he was, I had, we buried him beside my father. So me and Brandon made a decision. Like I'm still sick. Like I had a fever the whole week I was out, like every single day. Um, we made a decision. If one couldn't go, the other couldn't or wouldn't. And our moms pretty much kind of handled Jace's funeral. So not only did I only hold my son for less than five minutes the day I woke up, like I never saw him again, ever. I'm so sorry. And I was intubated again when I when I held him the first time. So I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't say anything, not, you know. So it was just kind of like this lost moment and probably the hardest thing about this whole situation has been just not being able to get those moments to say goodbye um, or just that time because I was so sick and you know unconscious for most of the time. I'm really thankful though that that night, you know, when they delivered him, that Brandon was able to spend a lot of time, you know, holding him and my family was there and they were able to hold him. And, and love on, you know, love on him and stuff. But, you know, that was something that was stolen from me. Um, so when I finally was released uh, from the hospital, I was just looking at my medical records. And when I was in the ER, one of my friends asked me, she was like, Mika, have they been doing urine samples on you? 
And I remember in that moment saying no, you know, just like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I called her. I was like, why did you ask me that? And she said, well, when you were in the ER, your urine was almost black. And I was like, hmm, okay. So that triggered me to like look at my medical records. And yeah, no, like the whole time I was pregnant, they didn't do one. Not not one. Like they did one to verify I was pregnant. So we were talking about, let's say November 2017. Mm-hmm. So here we are at May 2018. Jace was due on June in, on June 14, 2018, but they were going to actually induce me at 37 weeks. And we had about two more weeks before we were supposed to be induced anyway. And they had not done a urine sample the whole time I was pregnant, even though they told me I was high risk for preeclampsia. And at the time, I didn't know that protein in urine was a symptom of preeclampsia. Um, or, and I, and of course, didn't know anything about health syndrome, nor was I told anything about any of these things. So you know, when they told me I was high risk for preeclampsia, you know, the focus is always high blood pressure. And I have a very normal blood pressure, always have, even in my pregnancy, it got a little higher for me, but it wasn't, of course, preeclampsia high. But, you know, when you get on the other side of this and you're looking at your medical records and then you realize like it literally could have been caught, like if somebody had just decided to do a urine sample in the two appointments I had before this to where you know Jace was exhibiting signs of something going on and you never figured it out so they never really figured out why he was measuring small and then when we went to that when I went to that third that next Thursday appointment nobody even mentioned it anymore and of course it was the same MFM office so nobody even said anything else about it and I'm like pregnant you know what pregnancy brain is like I wasn't thinking about it because everybody seemed like everything was fine. So when you get like you get on the other side of this, there's just like, oh, wait, what? Because if I like if I say something to anyone, they're like, oh, my doctor took urine samples on me every single time I walked in the in the office. And I was like, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. And, you know, like looking back on it, there was one time one of the nurses was like, hey, do you need to pee? And I was like, no, do you need for me to pee? And she was like, no, don't worry about it. So like that nonchalantness in my mind, is like, oh, well, they don't really need that. That's just kind of like a something we do. Obviously it's not. So, I mean, after everything happened is when I didn't know there was a maternal health crisis when I got pregnant either. So just this experience opened my eyes to all these other things. And then when we got on the other side of it, we were just like traumatized, like completely, utterly traumatized. Like, how do you even, what just happened? Because again, I had a really great pregnancy. I did every single thing they told me to do. I had private insurance, not to say I'm like a genius or anything, but I have a couple master's degrees, you know, like went to all the appointments, got prenatal care early, like all the things that people say is a reason why there's a maternal health crisis. I did all those things right. Every single one of them. So what happened? And it was just too much it was too much to process it was too much to hold on to and I was like I have we have to do something we just have to do something like imagine like this devastated my whole entire family my whole entire family my whole tribe like we're all like traumatized Mm -hmm. because when I tell you like I shouldn't be here literally and you have a doctor Who's, who says to you, I don't know why I looked at that CT scan, but you know, thank God I did because had she not, I would have been induced on labor and delivery, bleeding internally, and I would have died. Point blank period. I would have, they didn't even understand why I was still alive. And that's without knowing anything else. Like they didn't understand it. And they were like, they 
they told me like pure scientists were like oh you're a miracle like I don't even know I can't even call it like I have no idea but thank god I was at a teaching hospital because mm, I don't know because she pulled in like two of a couple different organizations within that hospital to try to figure out how to save my life. And had she not done that, I would not be here to share Jason's life or his story. And that was one of the reasons why we started um, Jason's journey. It was like, you know, his, his death is not gonna just be that. Like our story did not end that day. His story did not end that day. And people will know who he is and his name and his story will change or save somebody's life at some point. And that's really why we started Jace's journey. And I've, I'm here for it. Like, you know, I've met some amazing, amazing people in this space that nobody ever wanted to be in. But it's a necessary process. It's advocacy is so necessary because like, like you said earlier, we get in these spaces and we look at these working groups and there's all these scientists talking about, oh, well, you know, this, this test and this test and this test. And when the, the true, the true thing for me is humanity. The true thing for me is how is this affecting people? And people are like, oh, well, it's just, I've had a doctor say, it's really not that many lives. So when you talk, yeah. right. The and you just like, is rare. I'm like, it's not really rare when it's one out of 170, first of all. Right. That and it's not that really many women. Enough. So when you, you talk about maternal mortality, it's not really that many women dying. No, you know, like I guess in the grand scheme of things, when there's like billions of people in the, the country, maybe 800 doesn't seem that big to you, but you're, you're just counting the 800 that person knows on average like 20, 30 people that are now affected by their death. So no, it's not just those people. And to me, one person is enough, especially when 80% of the deaths are preventable. Just like with stillbirth, like James's death was definitely preventable. We could have induced that, like we could have uh, induced that day, that Thursday. We could have had him. He could have survived. How many weeks outside. was he at? Huh? How many weeks was he at that appointment? 35. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like. Yeah, they take out babies at just happens. Like 30 weeks if they notice a problem, you know? Yeah, like you could have totally induced me that day and gotten him out and, you know, given me steroids and done all those things. Had you been paying attention to what you were doing? Had you talked to and connected the records that you're supposed to connect, you know, had you holistically looked at what was going on, had you done the testing you were supposed to do. And, you know, we talked last week about ACOG's recommendation for urine samples. Which and actually what, it came out the year before you. I was just looking at it. It says 2017. Yeah. And you're, I wonder you're everyone, because I had a baby before you. My first was in 2011. Right. And I do remember 2011. That was routine. We've got that but I don't know that I remember it after in my like last pregnancy, I did have mm -hmm. high risk though. So they probably did a little extra, but I, yeah, it's weird how all of a sudden they decide we don't really need to be. Yeah, we don't need this anymore. And since, you know, since we posted some of the things that we did for push last week, I've had a couple of women reach out to me and say, Hey, this happened to me too. Like they stopped doing urine samples. I think the little, the caveat people need to realize is I was high risk. I wasn't low risk. And that, that, that verbiage is, you know, based on that summary is based on low risk pregnancies, but I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like at a minimum, you should be doing a little bit more because you told me I was high risk. I didn't tell you I was because <laughs> I didn't have any pre-existing conditions. You know, like I said, my blood pressure has always been fine. I'm not diabetic or any of those things. So I didn't have any pre-existing conditions. You told me I was high risk. And then what? What baffles me is like the high risk situation versus low risk. If you look at the causes of, or the risk of stillbirth, who has more risk? Actually, first time moms have more risk. Yep. So shouldn't every first time mom get the best care available immediately? Like not wait for her to lose the baby, 
then next time around, we'll give you guys all the, the care you should deserve. You know, it's available. The science is there. We're not asking for you to go in a time machine to the future and bring back right. a machine. Like just do the basics that you do for everyone everywhere. And especially, like I said, your risk is higher at low, you know, if you're a first time mom, it's also higher right now if you're a black mom. So, I mean, there again, you could have gotten more care for that. I don't understand it. I feel like the risk thing is just nonsense. Like we shouldn't call it low risk or high risk. I think that's more for insurance purposes. Like yeah. oh, the, the high risk, yeah, you can do this and you can, anything you need, the scans, we'll go ahead and- right. Anything extra you need. But yeah. if you're low risk, no, you're not, you don't qualify for this care yet, you know? Which is, which is so crazy to me. But like, there's not really even a standard protocol for someone who's high risk let alone other than other than the fact that your ultrasounds are doing it maternal fetal medicine. I think it's the only thing that they're like, oh, okay, well, this is something that happens. But other than that, who really knows? And then like with ACOG being the regulatory body of, you know, OB care. And then <laughs> it's just, it, it baffles my mind. It baffles my mind how they also said that decreasing the amount of urine samples creates less time for nurses to actually do their jobs. Because if you think about an OB office, what do nurses do in an OB office? Because they, they prep the patient and they do the testing, but that's your job. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that my son's life would have been more time consuming for your nurse? Yeah, no, I'm not okay with that. No. Like, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, and if anyone wants to read that, I can drop the link for that in the comments later. But yeah, that needs to be. It's fixed. really it sad. Matter. I mean, and that's why we empower the parents as much as we try to work within the system and we attend everything we can and we try to use our voice for you guys to you know, fight for some change and actually what is being provided at the end of the day, if you don't know what you don't know, that's a problem too, because like all of us, we trust the system. We trust our doctors. We were, you know, all of us educated. It doesn't matter if you even were a doctor. I mean, some women have lost babies who are obese. Yep. So it's not about that. It's also, you know, just understanding like it's their paternalistic nature. You walk in, you have a concern, you know, they may or may not listen to it. They may do the same amount of tests that they should or not. They might miss one of the tests. You know, even if they do an NST these days where they are checking like very thoroughly, they think that NST is only good for that amount of time where the machine is on you and seeing right. how he's moving and the heartbeat and everything. So you leave and you still feel uneasy. They should have continued or they should have kept you there. You know, but the mother's thinking, okay, good, everything's clear. You've told me I'm fine, I'm going home, you know, and it's really hard for you to speak out in that time when you don't even know that your baby could be dying like mine. I didn't know about stillbirth at that time. I didn't know that that could happen. I was in a healthy, normal pregnancy, like expecting smooth sailing. I'm in the last trimester. Right. So it's really terrible looking back, like you said, looking at the records in the end, you're like, oh my gosh, that one time that I said this and they really didn't test much, should I have done more, you know? So then you carry guilt and a feeling of shame and, and just like, it's unfair because the burden becomes the parent's burden when it really is the system and they failed us. And that's why we call this episode, you know, failing families. They failed the whole family and that, you know, we trusted them and they didn't do a hundred percent. Right. They, and, and, you know, you think about, you know, doctors and how much school they go through, you know, like there's no way. And I don't want anybody to think that, that you can do this. Like there's no way to know everything about pregnancy. There's no way as a person who is not in the field can know everything about pregnancy. Um, that's why, you know, we always advocate for people having support people, whether it's a, you know, it's like if you have a midwife and you have a doula or you just have a cousin that's with you and can like, remember for you because being pregnant like pregnancy brain is real like I don't I'm not pregnant right now and I can't remember stuff so <laughs> you know what I mean like just having an advocate like if you can't advocate for yourself or you feel like you need you know someone there with you take someone there with you um I think you know for me I really trusted my doctors to do what they were supposed to do 
you know, I didn't, I don't go to your job and tell you how to do it. So, you know, I don't expect for you to come to my job and tell me how to do it. So I trusted the system that I was raised to trust because, you know, you guys have more, they have more education, they have all these things. But I think one thing that's missing in healthcare right now is the care. Like, I don't, I just, I think like patient-centered care is really ultimately how we get past this, right? Like you have to treat that patient specifically based on that patient's needs. Like regardless of what these statistics show in black women, regardless of what these statistics show in white women, how does Tamika's body work? You know, how does Anna's body work? Because me and Anna have had completely different lives and completely different experiences that could affect the way that we, but like symptoms show up in pregnancy. You know, like we, we have to get to a point where we have conversations with patients, where we partner with our patients or patients partner with their providers to understand holistically what's going on with their body. And nobody knows your body more than you do. So, you know, I'm all about self-advocacy. I'm all about if you feel like and you are in a position to do this, like if you feel like your doctor's not listening to you, get another doctor. You don't have to go to your grandma's doctor just because that's the person that has been in your family for however long. And I know in some cases it's really hard for like rural areas that don't have a lot of access, but you know, there's a lot of telehealth going on right now. So, you know, if you are in a position where you feel like you're not being listened to, you're not being heard, especially if you're pregnant, get a second opinion because that could be you or your baby's life. Like what you're feeling is valid, no matter what anybody is telling you in your ear, what you're feeling is valid and you know better than anybody else. So that that's my spiel. Like make sure you're advocating for yourself. Make sure you understand and listen to what your body's telling you. Because I think we get talked out of what we're feeling a, a lot of times and we have to be strong enough to be like, look, I know what I'm feeling. If you're not gonna hear me, then I'm gonna find somebody else that will because we don't have time to waste anymore. Like these deaths are preventable and we have to stop them. And we yeah. won't do it if we keep being quiet about it. And you can't really go back, which is like the hard thing. Cause it's like, oh, I wish I could have told myself this mm -hmm. at that time. But, but you also need to know. Right. Most people don't even know like there's a maternal health crisis still. Oh, no. And I think we know because we're always in the space, but most people don't even know. No, they're just going to the doctor. Like, they're oh, just going I'm going to have the, the baby. You know, let's have the exactly. baby shower. Now the baby's coming. But I just wanted to say, like you were mentioning, knowing your body, they will tell you whoever's they, it could be your family even, that things are normal for you. Like, mm -hmm. oh, it's normal to be uncomfortable. And they might write off, like, you're, you're just pregnant, you know, you're just getting tired because of this. And I had that feeling of like overexhaustion with Owen at the end. And if for some reason for you, that just doesn't feel right, like, just go in and check it, you know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. You're not bothering, you know, maybe you'll get charged something, but at the end of the day, your insurance ends up tapped fully and you have to pay the full bill at the end of the month or the year anyway, right? It's like a pregnancy is going to get to this point. So may as well use all the time that you can go in there. Right. Um, but honestly, like at that time, I couldn't look back and say like, oh yeah, I would have, if I would have fought for this right then because I really didn't think it was serious and nobody was taking it serious so that's where we put the you know onus on the system as well it's like Absolutely. if anyone mentions anything's a little bit odd say you know what thanks for coming in like that's great let's check on that instead of making it feel like always like it's a, a little bit of a bother or you know you might get a nurse who talks a little bit like Oh yeah, yeah, that's normal. You're, you know, it'll use your first pregnancy. Oh yeah, you're just you know experiencing the normal pregnancy growth and whatnot. Um, and it's hard because I see a lot of young ladies losing babies right now, especially because I'm on TikTok and TikToks where they all end up posting lost stories. And I'm like, this really sucks because here is this perfect young healthy woman had everything you know planned for the baby and she was doing all the right things. And at the end of the day, she did, some of them do voice concerns like with fetal movement change and they just don't get heard because of their young 
their youth and you know people look at yeah. different way like where do you win like how do you win like they don't listen to black women because they're black they don't listen to young women because they're young you know what I mean like well, that's the statistic point. though that's where the problem is and that's why I really do believe like the CDC has the hear her campaign for maternal mortality but I think it applies for stillbirth as well is just listen and every situation listen to the patient and then we can get somewhere, you know, like you said, individualized care. Yeah, it's, it, it has to be, it has to be. And, you know, I think education from our perspective too, is like, you know, bringing awareness, like, hey, stillbirth happens, stillbirth happens way more than they want you to think it does. And, you know, we have to, we have to normalize it. We have to normalize it because it is our lives at this point. Like this, this is normal for us. Like we've been here, we've done that, we know, and it doesn't go away. So we have to, we have to have these conversations. So to make people aware, like there's some other stuff going on. Pregnancy is really great for a lot of people, but it really sucks for a lot of other people. And that's okay, because as long as we're having the conversation, we can change people's lives. Because I honestly feel like it's like, the more you know about something, the opportunity you have to make better decisions about you, you and your, your baby, your life, your family, your, your whoever. Like as, as educated as you can be, as much knowledge as you can have, as much awareness as you can have, you can make better decisions. And we have to stop trying to sugarcoat things just because they're uncomfortable to talk about mm-hmm. yeah people are afraid of scaring moms and I'm right like, I don't want to there's nothing about. scary about being prepared because you get on a plane and everyone has to hear the spiel and it's like yeah that sounds really awful and you're saying it in front of my kids like it sounds very scary we're all going to go down and we're going to figure out how to put the life fist on yeah but that's preparing you for the one case that that might happen well and this as well one out of 170 that's actually more common than the plane going down yet you don't want to tell me about that and I'm a grown adult right handle this you know I'm a woman that has I'm gonna have to take care of this baby as it grows so you may as well tell me how to take care of my baby right now right well exactly because when you get to that stillbirth there's no more talking like there's nothing else you can say to me at this point yeah and it's like oh oops I'm sorry. We exactly. don't know what happened, but well, there was that risk. Baby. Like it, there was a risk that this could have happened, but you didn't say anything about that. Yeah. You didn't say anything about that. No. And so, it would change yeah. the way you are in pregnancy to be prepared. And I mean, our accounts, like we talk a lot about it and we've always kind of fumbled around, like, how should we say it? Do we want to be in their face about it? We don't want to scare them away. We want them to follow us. We want them to see it, you know, but at the end of the day, whatever you put out, it's helpful. You know, we've done a little campaign now, which you were in as well, the stillbirth break the silence. And anyone who wants to post can post your stories for that with the hashtag. But I think that, you know, right now we're in like a very blunt phase. I feel like we're going to try the blunt way because the other way didn't work for so long. Like being quiet about it. That's what people do anyway. Like it's, it's like every, we need honesty. We need transparency. We need honesty. People don't want to hear a bunch of blah, blah, blah. I don't like listening to blah, blah, blah. Don't blah, blah, blah me. Tell me what I need to know in order to survive. Like, tell me what I need. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I can do myself to help prevent something. Tell me that I need to count the kicks, which they don't really. I mean, you, some people, some doctors do, but most doctors don't. Tell me what I need to do, huh? Or they tell you wrong. Right. The long or wrong advice about kick counting. You have to know your baby's normal pattern and it's still online about 10 kicks in two hours. Oh, you're fine. And actually I'm constantly debunking that online. Like I have to go back right now because I just posted something on TikTok and people are commenting and they're trying to help each other, but they're giving each other the wrong advice. And I'm like, why is this so pervasive in our culture? No. So we're still not there, you know, nobody really knows what counting means and right. more normal pattern of your baby because every baby's different. There's no minimum for, oh, your baby's fine if you got those 10. No, because if your baby normally has 30, all of a sudden 10 is a bad sign for you, you know? So mm-hmm. it's getting into the culture too. And also like for us, this break the silence thing, I think has been powerful for other parents because they see it and they realize there's no... Um, you shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel like the stigma that I can't share my story. I can't talk about my baby. I can't talk about what happened to us because you feel guilty about it. 
I think the silence is what's keeping it going this way. Mm-hmm. And people kind of just imagining like, well, she must have forgot to take a, a or she didn't go to her appointment. Yeah. You know, she yeah. must have done something wrong on her end where this happened to her, but it's not going to happen to me. But newsflash, a lot of us are normal low risk pregnancy or high risk with a good care. And, you know, it still happened to us. So us coming out with it, like we are now, I think it's going to help a lot of people down the road and especially other lost parents too, to feel like they don't have to carry that guilt and, you know, shame themselves, keep quiet because they feel judgment. And at the end of the day, you know, it was nothing we did. No one's fault. This happened. We love our children and we're still going to talk about them regardless. And this is a way to do it in an honorable way and make them feel like, you know, we all can impact the future for other families. And we are, you know, I don't know how many people you've helped, but like my own little baby account, I already know I have at least three babies in the world that are alive, thanks to what I do constantly. So, I mean, that makes me happy. I'm like, you know, always looking out for these kids. You know, we don't want anyone to suffer like we have. And it's not, like you said, these numbers, statistics, stuff like that, people can easily like brush it off. Like, oh, you know, that's not that many. Well, it actually is a lot. Like I said, it is not a rare statistic. It's actually pretty high. But if you think about it, it's Owen and Jace and it's Tamika's family, my family. Then you start to realize like, this is actually something we need to like go and work on. It's a public health crisis. It's Mm -hmm. not just, oh, um, one person this happened to this year. No, it's actually 65 a day. Anyways, that's a lot of babies. That's a lot. Like that's a lot to me. It's a lot. And yeah, it's, it's just a lot. It's like 65 families affected by stillbirth every day, every day. And you're just like, we have to stop this. We have to stop it. Yeah, and it's not impossible. That's the other thing is breaking that because people think, oh, it's not preventable. Even the doctors themselves sometimes like, we don't know what happened. It just happened. And like, can we look back? Can we go look at it together? And they won't go through that process with you. I get stuck with like the lawyers who are like, oh, this is all. We can only just see you and say goodbye kind of thing. Like they do not help you. So they themselves don't go and look at the care they provided and say, where could I have done better? Um, I had an appointment with mine just after finally getting that research back. And I said, did you look at the research? Cause he emailed it to him and he's like, oh, you know, he didn't really act like he even put any care and attention to that. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about it because it was a court accident. I know you guys don't do anything for courts, but maybe you could have taught me about fetal movement more and we could have discussed it in all your appointments. You could have asked about it. And he said, yeah, I think I put a pamphlet, put a pamphlet in there. When you get pregnant, you should have got a pamphlet about kick counting and a bag of stuff. And I was like, well, how helpful is that, right? For a person who is told every time that everything looks normal, everything's healthy and you're not asking about it. And I never knew about it you know, more than just reading that pamphlet at the time, you know, it wasn't made to seem super important. So I told him, you know, maybe you should do a little bit more for the future, but that's what bothers me the most. And that's why I think it's a system problem because they don't go back and fix what happened. Like, and that, you know, when your child dies, you're like, what in the world? Why? You know, and you're into yourself like, oh, my family, this is a tragedy for our family. But then you also think, what about the other families? What about the people after us? I, I can't live with that. I don't want someone else to come in here and get this bad care and not have their baby with them. So of course exactly. we want to get involved, you know, we want to go back there and tell them and educate them. And if they're not willing to hear us and involve us, like we're saying in these meetings and everything, we're trying to be a participant and they only want to theorize about it. Well, that's a big problem. Exactly. It's like, you can't, you can't solve a problem without all the players at stake right? So like, yeah, we need the doctors, we need the the scientists or whatever, but we also need the people. We need the humans. We need the people who, who have been affected by what's going on because they can tell you like firsthand of not just the medical experience, but also that physical experience of what symptom did I have that somebody else didn't? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, from a preeclampsia health syndrome perspective, you know, we talk about like each stillbirth is different, each baby's different, their movements are different. So is every pregnancy. There's no pregnancy that's exactly the same. So for you to use data about pregnancies and use everything exactly the same is a disservice to the patient, point blank period, because 
My pregnancy was completely different than yours. I didn't have morning sickness. I know people who were sick the whole time they were pregnant. So every pregnancy is different. There's no pregnancy that's the same. None. And we have to start working that way. And I think, like the sugar coating, I think is really sad. Like it's almost like we just want women to keep having babies. So let's not worry them. But let's we can't even protect babies. <laughs> we like we can get into this right here. No, but do we, you want to? You can go there. I could go a little longer. But the thing like is, we we can get into this don't because set it, up women. Like the thing is, I gave that out in my speech for the big push because I felt like that was core to the reason my loss happened is the way I was raised as a young girl mm-hmm. to listen to obey authority to never really question I didn't have a voice in my household or outside until I became an adult which is like later in life you're going to college and you're still following direction you're still listening to professors and doing the work that they want you to turn in and you don't really ever get transition and taught how to become this mother that has to now advocate and like speak for your child and, and push back, give the pushback that is needed. And you don't realize you need to be doing that in that situation. Cause again, you feel like it's that same imbalance of power where they're the authority, they have the lab coat on, they're in charge, they've gone to school, they know more than you. So just listen and, and follow directions and do the right thing. So that's why I'm raising my daughter very different. I'm like, she could talk back all day long because I'm putting her out in the world prepared. You know, I want her to be out there like, no, this doesn't feel right to me. I'm questioning this, you know? So that that's part of my spiel. I'm a feminist, but I think it's important to give everyone, you know, opportunity at home and outside, just like you have a voice. You go into your appointments, you have a voice, you know, they might say everything looks fine say, well, but I'm not so sure. Hold on, you know. Right. But being, you know, I think, you know, it's important to also feel comfortable in that space too, to be able to do that because, you know, there's that stereotype about black women being angry and all these things. So, you know, we, we go into it and some of us try to police ourselves whenever we have those conversations. So it's not like, oh God, here's this black woman, this angry black woman, again, complaining about this, this, and this. So, you know, yeah. Forget that. Oh, that's big. I mean, that came into play with Charles Johnson and his wife who passed exactly. away, Johnson, where he felt like he couldn't really get irate as he should have possibly where he felt like he wanted to, but he was like, but I have to back down a little because then they're going to kick me out of here and I want to be with my wife. And then at the end of the day, people look like, why didn't you cause a scene? And he's like, of course I didn't cause a scene because what would have happened to me as a black man is different from what would have been like for your white husband, you know? And exactly. And, and and then, you know, I think it's important that even physicians take stuff like that into consideration. Like, here's this Black man trying to advocate for his wife. If I get irate, like, if he gets irate, you know what that's going to be like. So don't let him get there. Like, give him some grace. Like, help him to understand what's going on so he doesn't have to be that guy. Mm-hmm. But it's gotten to the point where now you just have to be that guy. Like, you just have to be that person. So the push for empowered pregnancy team right now we're working on a lot of stuff uh, like you were saying you just had that big meeting with the NCIHD and so we're presenting what we think research needs to be done on because there's a lot of areas of research that are just not touched and you know the the racial factor is huge and the journalism is huge and it's hard to look into those kind of issues but they're coming up obviously in the statistics mm. so I mean, it's more, I think, listening and more, like you said, involving the parents, because unfortunately, they're not really listening to anyone, it feels like, but no, I don't know why, like for in your case, like you were so close to death. Thank God it didn't go that way, but it could have been, you know, and I know that that's a big part of your trauma too. now carrying that and your husband as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Just I don't, we didn't even talk about aftercare or anything like oh, that. We had so much, so many other things to talk about. We can do more episodes with Tamika. If you guys want her <laughs> back, send me a message. We'll come back and we'll do an update on Tamika and everything that you're doing with Jason's journey too. Because I, I think it's important to have local resources and you're in North Carolina. So if anyone unfortunately experiences a loss or you need help as your pregnancy is going, um, make sure you reach out to her. I don't know yeah. if you want to share a little bit more about what options. Oh, you yeah. So um, you can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook. I think I have, I have a TikTok now. TikTok, Twitter, 
I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet that much. I retweet a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's jacesjourney.org. So www.jacesjourney.org. You can uh, put a message in and I'll get it immediately. Um, I'm at Tamika James Isaac on Instagram and Facebook and Jace's Journey. We have a Facebook page, so you can connect with us there too. So anywhere you see Jace's Journey is probably us. I think there may be some other organization at some point, but if, if it pops up first, it's probably us. But yeah, please reach out if you need to, um, especially if you you know had a stillbirth and want to have you know talk to somebody. I'm always open to talk to people who have had you know this this experience because it's something you you don't have to navigate by yourself. Um, and there are plenty of people out here who are willing to talk to you through it and help you figure out what's best for you and to help you navigate it and because it's different and it doesn't go away but you know we move forward so and if you want to get into advocacy you can always contact me too because there are definitely a lot of different ways you can advocate um, in this space and in maternal mortality and all those things so definitely we're in Washington DC together yep we had the standing beside each other (laughs) I'll post a picture later it's funny because you circle around and you see the same people at different things. And then eventually you're like, oh, we can be friends now. We know each other. But um, <laughs> I'm just so grateful for what you're doing too. And Me too. I, 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 I really push so much. So, and thank you for like always including me, you and Sam, like the whole team is super awesome. And it's been such a joy to get to know all of y'all and just kind of work with you guys and break the silence, you know, let's do it. We're going to keep doing it. 2023, you're going to see some good stuff and it's oh, going to yeah. get louder and louder until people hear us. We're just going to keep screaming. <laughs> yeah, they're going to scream. Going on. I'm going to cry real hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot. I mean, it's a lot. It's emotional. Like I'm upset a lot, but doing the work helps me with the grief. I'm the same, I'm the same way. It's and people ask me that all the time because they're like, oh, how do you, I was like, this is actually therapy for me mm-hmm. because I feel like we, we get to kind of process it, you know, even though it's like over and over again, and yes, it's very painful. And sometimes I just need to like do nothing at all, but it helps me knowing that I'm helping someone else or somebody may hear my story and it's like oh my doctor didn't get a urine sample on me last week let me just ask for one because it's the simplest test that they do like it's the simplest thing that they everyone do. gets your urine samples even if they tell you they don't do that anymore you can still yeah. nag them ask for one make sure you get one at least at least a couple I'm not saying you have to do one every day but just just test the waters pretty much just and they don't them. do third trimester ultrasounds for women who are low-risk pregnancy so that's another one I would recommend especially like let's say past 30 weeks and you start to feel maybe there's something wrong or the movement's different say just run me an ultrasound real quick because there could be a baby that's not growing as much and they just don't see it and that's one of the also preventable you know stillbirth things is if you see the baby's not growing that must mean something's going on with the cord or the placenta so you know Unfortunately, you're going to have to figure out a way to get this service if it's not standard care for you, but that's why we're here for you. You know, keep asking the questions and we'll tell you our experiences because we're here to help one another. It's a community. I don't think, like you said, we don't have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're pregnant now, go ahead and DM any of us. If you're concerned about something, we'll back you up. You know, if you need somebody to tell you, yeah, yeah, that's not crazy. Go for it. Go check, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't have to have high blood pressure to be diagnosed with health syndrome either. Yeah. Yeah. So everything because your blood pressure is not high doesn't mean that you can't develop health syndrome. Um, I think preeclampsia, you have to have high blood pressure, but with health syndrome, I think it's a little different. So you don't have to have help, um, high blood pressure to be diagnosed with help, which was my case. So mm. So well, that protein that. is probably going to be a better test or a helpful test. So try to get one if you can. Yes. Ask and ask and ask. Be the squeaky wheel. So, I mean, that's the thing is I don't blame the doctors per se specifically because I know they come to this work as they want to help. They want to take care of babies and they want to see these babies born healthy and alive and us too but it's a system where they're just overwhelmed and they do have their insurance and, you know, our costs and all this stuff. 
So at the end of the day, they're rushing and they're trying to get you through and they're trying to get to like however many patients they need to see in that day. So that's why we need to stop them, you know, and like create a relationship with them. Like you said, feel comfortable with them, make sure they know who you are and make sure they know who your other kids are, your spouse, you know, whoever's with you so that they feel like more invested in you personally and that they can remember you, you know, the next appointment. Cause I also did what you did where I had a different doctor see me in the group. And I was like, no one really knew me. No one really knew Owen. I don't think they would have caught it because they just barely glanced at the file. They didn't look at the prior ones very much. And they just looked at my current, you know, blood pressure and whatnot, minimal things they did. And, oh, you're good. See you next time. Which is kind of defeating the purpose of having those records like there. Like what, what, what is the point? <laughs> like, if you're not going to review but they don't have enough time. They don't, they don't sit there looking in between. I mean, they might glance at it. Like I said, they probably try, but so it's up so, to us though, to so carry our own. Like you can get the copies too. I mean, you can be that person. I was like, let me have the copies of my records. So every time you come in, you can go back and say, well, well, last time I game, I had this, you know, do what you got to do, you know, so yeah. you can bring your baby home and you could be okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tamika. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope that Happy New Year. Everyone has healthy, happy pregnancies. And again, if you experience a loss, it's not your fault and we're here for you. I know this was a terrifying episode, but remember that Jace's death was preventable. Please take from it what Tamika wants you to know. You know your body and your baby best. Demand the testing that you think you might need. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy. But always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they are available to you 24-7 even if you have to go into the hospital or ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community. We hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers, providers, researchers, and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth, you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way. Goodbye for now.